Okay. First question, what is the meaning of the word concocted? Well, generally means created, but concocted it means something that's rather fake. It's got a fake sound to it. That's a, that argument's concocted. It means it's based on false logic. So it's it's some something hasn't got a firm foundation. It's, it's concocted. What is the term I use for the fluid upward movement of energy? Um, punya. Associated meaning merit or good. A, that's so actions that are uh, associated with benevolence, and um, when one you know reaches out from the narrow, contracted state or the greed state into something more loving or giving or resilient or patient, these are all punya because they they give rise to good results. They're not just approved of, they give rise to tangibly good results. Difference between manas and mano is just the nature of the Pali language. Uh, Manas is the Pali, the root form of the word, and mano is when it's connected to another term, like mano vijnana, mind consciousness. When it stands alone, we might use the word manas. So that's the, the nature of the Pali grammar. If everything is empty of inherent existence, what do you mean by a pure mind? Mm. Uh, did I say that? Uh, empty of inherent existence, pure mind. Well, perhaps there are ways of saying the same thing. Mm. Purity is empty of um, fabrications. When we come around to existence and emptiness, it's... Uh, it's quite a strange piece of language. Yeah. And one of the one of the interesting sayings of one of these forest agiles is um, the candors exist, but they're not real. Chitra is real, but it doesn't exist. So existence, I think, on a philosophical level means that which is can be seen as manifest. Um, so when formations are concocted, it means they they manifest, but they have no real inherent foundation. They have no strength to them. They're purely concocted. And that's the nature of what are called conditioned dhammas. Now, when the mind is freed from those conditioned dhammas, we would call it the pure mind. But of course, it's not a thing. Could you say something about why discernment comes in during the process of jitta being wrapped up or being freed and um, this is not something one can resolve in, in three minutes <laughs> but give you a suggestion um, wisdom is some degree of, <laughs> of wisdom is essentially in all of it uh, word wisdom itself may seem a little bit too high uh, for what means just the ability to to be clear to differentiate so when the mind is completely blurred and overwhelmed, we can't see this from that. It's just in a blur. So some degree of clarity is called panya. It's an inherent faculty. It's one of the called the indriya. It's inherent foundation. It's uh, inherent faculty. 
the ability to distinguish. Um, for our purposes, this wisdom faculty learns to distinguish first of all, uh, maybe what is um, ethically, what gives rise to good results and what gives rise to bad results. So this is punya, what's good, what's skillful and what's unskillful. And then it starts to also differentiate what gives rise to stress and what tends to the diminution of stress, that's wisdom. So it's a discerning. And so its first element is to set aside. That's that, that's that. So it's got this sometimes sword-like quality. Uh, uh, and when it's resolute in that this is also, this leads to release and this leads to non-release, that sword comes down and, and cuts away the attachment. So in this way, it's, it's part of the process of, uh, of liberation. Uh, and, uh, this is not worth following. As I said, many of these, uh, these wrappings, these conditions are, are addictive. They deep, get deeply embedded and it takes quite a bit of resolution to keep picking away at it. Essentially, you start you know, just gentling up, softening and seeing what you can brush aside and then no, 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 being clear, this leads to stress. This leads to stress. No, this leads to stress. No, I know it's fun, but this leads to stress. <laughs> I know everybody else does it, but it leads to stress. So you keep, just keep getting back from all the, the justifications. No, no, just there. And there's the place. Also, you need to have the wisdom to see the particular point in the jitta where you can apply wisdom. And it's where the perception and the feeling touches the mind and then the reaction occurs. Yeah. So the perception feeling touches the mind and then, oh, oh, oh. Now, is it possible to get in between that, between the, what we receive and what we act upon? And it is. Uh, it's said that you can't differentiate in consciousness, you can't differentiate between perception and feeling and consciousness. They're all bound up. Where there's consciousness, there will be perception and feeling. But sankhara comes, as you see, sankhara acts towards consciousness. So it's like the thumb and the, and the hand. It, it's kind of conjoined. And yet, you know, <laughs> and yet it can, whoop, it can, so the, the, the Sankara is not default, conjoined to every moment of consciousness, to, to the habit of consciousness, it can turn. And the wisdom is to know how you can get to that place where you could and then you don't. You could and you pause, you could and you step back, or you, you could run away and you stand still, yeah. You could get excited or you could just open up and let things pass. And that, their wisdom is then has the ability to, to sense the point and remember it. So it's possible the chitta is capable of learning. We can reset. The chitta is a learning experience. We've learned a lot of mixed messages, maybe, and confused messages and messages that don't go so far. And the chitta is able to learn. It does adopt and pick up things so then we start to give it the right education 
this you can refrain from. If you do it continually, eventually that habit will pass. So this is where wisdom is inherent, is necessary. Uh, so you, you can learn. Uh -huh. And then you learn something about that. And you also learn something about, you know, you have the power. You have the power to do that. Isn't that rather remarkable? And if you've got that power, if you've got that capacity, just think of the possibilities or explore the possibilities of how, you know, there could be a really fortunate development if you're able to terminate these deadening or limiting sankharas and rise up and come out. Wisdom. And probably more on that. Wisdom is both a tool, a seer, and it's also something that can be, uh, you know, like a place of abiding in knowing, in the sense of abiding in the wisdom of non-attachment. I think I get stuck, someone is saying, thinking that chitta is a thing, rather than it seems more like a process of experience. Yeah, well, that's pretty normal, because as soon as we stick a few letters down on a page, chitta, make a sound, there it is. It, uh, it's got the, the experiences of a thing. You can't use a word without somehow, uh, you know, bringing a thing in behind it. But if you consider something like happiness, is that a thing? It's an experience. Intelligence, is that a thing? Well, then it's mind, is that a thing? No, it's, uh, it's a, more like a quality. Knowingness and the fundamental properties uh, of, of chitta are knowingness. That's its, one of its fundamental properties. It has, it, it, uh -huh. Uh -huh. it registers. Uh -huh. And it, it, it's affected, it shivers. Uh, it's an effective shivering. It's a, it's a receptive energy that's able to be moved, shift. It centers. It forms a center, if, if you're not crazy. Yeah. It forms a center. Uh, it's energetic. It can move. So what's this? Yeah. And it's sort of we, we tend to be stuck in our language between materiality, like actual tangible physical things, we call them things, and abstractions, such as tomorrow, five, six, 28, eight o'clock, pure abstractions. So we tend to operate a lot around abstractions, nationality, da-da-da-da-da, you know. So the, these, these are completely abstract. Or we've got physical things. And the two are completely separate. This is, you know, Plato onwards divided the world into those two polarities. But in India, they never did. <laughs> they never did that, never did that thing. It started with, I think it started with Plato, I think, abstraction. So in their system, there's, a, there's, a, there's different shades of energy. 
there's energy that gets extremely uh, coarse, and this we call materiality. And some of it's very coarse, and some of it's less coarse. Some of it's extremely hard, and some of it's quite soft and pliable. So that's an energy, energy crystallizing. And then it becomes looser, you know, till it's just sort of more vibrant. And eventually it becomes so loose and ethereal, you know, it becomes extremely refined. So this is the spectrum of energy. You know, as we've discovered since Einstein, you know, E equals MC squared, matter is energy. We've all learned probably at school how you know, atoms don't exist, it's just energies. They try to break it down into the most fundamental building bricks of nature, didn't they? What's the building bricks of the universe? We've got down to atoms. Oh no, it's protons. Oh no, it's electrons. And they keep trying to shatter down to the most fundamental building bricks. So there actually aren't any building bricks. <laughs> there are no bricks in the universe. It's just all energies in different forms. And we've kind of got that as a theory in physics, but we still haven't shifted uh, in some respects. And so jitta is of that nature. It can be, it's of an energy that can be extremely fine and subtle. And it's also, it can be extremely coagulated and dense. It can have a location and it also be released from location. And uh, so that's, that's, that's what it's like. <laughs> uh, and what happens when the energy is, is cooled, mm, the deathless jitta. Mm. Mm. So let's have a look. You mentioned that when jitta is wrapped up, we need to work through the body first rather than psychologically. Could yoga help? It could do. I wouldn't exactly see it as, you know, first this and then that. I think you work with whatever you can. It would be helpful to say, you know, actually what therapy is about, for example, is just giving you a psychological boost to say you could do something. You know, you could change. So that's in some ways a, there's a psychological quality to that, just coming out of the, the fixation, that, you know, which is depression when you can't, you feel you can't do anything. There's this sort of need to, to, to at least have faith. And faith is the initiating, initiating indria, need for awakening. Even though I am pretty screwed up and contracted, I, I got the sense it, it could be possibly other than this. Okay, and this stuff looks like you could do it. That's faith. So that's, you could say, first your faith is psychological. And then... Um, Depends what the conditions are, but uh, you know, what I'm suggesting is some things are so embedded, you don't seem to be able to get your mind behind it. It's already happened. It's so reflexive, so reactive, so structured. Then you need to do some body work, or body work would be a helpful contribution. Yoga helps, um, Qigong helps. Uh, and uh, other things help. Chanting helps. Chanting is actually very embodied experience. It, it sends resonances through the body, so that helps. Chanting is, is a therapeutic process. Helps resonate the body, and it also 
activates the throat, which can get very tight, and it generally it sends energy through the head and face. And of course, it's associated with beautiful notions. And so it's, it's, it works on all levels. So I want to say body work, we're not just talking about something that's necessarily physical, but it's somatic. Mm. So certainly in the old Vedic systems, they have, you know, have bhakti yoga, which is just quality of prayer and devotion. You have karma yoga, it's just doing some good service. And then you have hatha yoga, work on your body. Then you get breath yoga. And it says, then you can do meditation. <laughs> that's their structure. Yeah. Uh, most of these religious traditions have got this kind of setup. In the suttas of Patanjali, it states yoga is stilling the fluctuations of the mind, jitta vritti niroda, curious given the Vedic Upanishadic worldview of the time. How did the Buddha's use of jitta differ? Now, I'm not an expert on much actually, but um, you know, I have a, some familiarity with the Vedic, really Upanishadic Vedas, the early Vedas weren't really into Chitta at all. They're much more into just the, you know, um, deities and proper rites to propitiate the deities. But the Upanishadic stuff, it's about 800 BCE, before the Buddha, they started to get more introspective into beginning with, you know, looking into Chitta. And you'll see this phrase, Sat Chit Ananda, Sat presence, jit, intelligence or awareness, ananda, bliss, saying the pure intelligence, chitta, pure presence and blissfulness, such jit, ananda, that's a kind of simple cryptic um, statement of the you know, illuminated state. Uh, so I think, you know, the, certainly this stuff, you know, being talked about uh, in the time of the Buddha, so you it will hang out in these various parks and groves, all the philosophers and ascetics of the time would sit and they'd really the sutras you see they're wrangling with each other or saying this or exchanging views and opinions. And this is this, the self is this, it's not that, this is this, you know. And the Buddha said, Well, you know, he he, he said, Well, what you've got to recognize the tendencies you could arrive at in your Upanishads was of a permanent jitta, like a permanent self. And I think this is still taught. And it's a kind of one of those debatable points. Is there a higher self, like Advaita, a higher self, Advaita Vedanta? And is, is a non-self, is that an annihilation? Or is there some sort of jitta beyond the self? Uh, and this is, gets very you know, suspect, difficult territory to talk about unless you really know what you're talking about. But uh, the... Upanishadic proposition is that the pure jitta merges with Brahma. Uh, so there's some sort of state of boundless bliss that the pure jitta can arise to and through. Buddha was much more uh, just kind of like looking at the psychologies of jitta, saying, well, let's just deal with releasing the jitta from its fabrications and unbind it. And he didn't really, he says, this is peaceful, this is easeful, this is the sublime. But he doesn't get into a monistic worldview. That is, there is a great one that we return to. And there's a tendency 
in the Upanishadic thinking, and again, it depends how you interpret these things, to sense we've all come from some great one, and we're going back to this great oneness. And the Buddha didn't support that view. Could you clarify the point in which duality appears in the process? Duality appears with um, consciousness, Sankara formulates a subject and an object. Right, you know, consciousness of. So, and primarily this is sense consciousness is the obvious one. There's an object, there's a, there's a seer, you know, so there's two of us, the seer and the scene. You know, this is when Sankara formulates, activates consciousness into this dualistic mode. And of course, when I say sense consciousness, also mean manas. So we can have there's my thoughts, my thoughts are running past, and I'm not pleased with my thoughts, that's dualistic. There's me and my thoughts. So all the processes of mind consciousness, which are far more prevalent and pervasive than other sense forms. When jitter is open, not wrapped up, is unwrapped jitter the same as consciousness? Well, it all depends, but uh, the most common um, use of consciousness in the suttas is not the unwrapped. Mm. The unwrapped jitta, so consciousness is conditioned, wrapped up in sights, sounds, thoughts, impressions. It's conditioned. so it's unwrapped, means it, you know, the jitta sees the ceasing of consciousness, sees that the mano vijnana subsides. So then there's no object. Therefore, there's no duality. There's no subject either. There are, there are a few, few very um, interesting and kind of slightly enigmatic uh, passages which talk about the consciousness released um, you know, the anidasana vijnana, uh, uh, which comes up occasionally, anidasana, trackless, that which cannot be manifested. Uh, one would say, well, this, this kind of consciousness is the result of the release of citta. So the arahant still sees, hears, and so forth, but what's not present is an organizing self. So the uh, results of consciousness are not wrapping around jitta. It doesn't leave traces. It's a trackless consciousness because there's no passion. As we go through some of these passages, these terms I'm using be resonating again and again. And you can look at them yourself and to kind of start to chime in with them. Where there's a passion for form, an interest in form, then jitta, consciousness that brings that jitta bonds to that. Then it gets wrapped up in consciousness and the objects of sense consciousness. If there's no passion for it, no interest in it, it doesn't. It's just sights pass, no, no adherence. Then the sense consciousness doesn't leave these traces on the jitta. 
Otherwise, sense impact, particularly mental sense impact, leaves traces on the jitta. The jitta is molded and shaped by the results of mano. As his first line of the Dhammapada, mano is the, is the chief, the instigator of all Dhammas. It's the one that leaves its thumbprints on the jitta. So mano operates through mano vijnana, mind consciousness. Leaves the traces, favorable, unfavorable, uh, and so forth. I am this, I am not that. Ajahn Mahabhava's comments on jitta seems to characterize it as unconditioned. Uh, yeah, he does. <laughs> and that's his, his, uh, his expression. And uh, I've got a few more of those. If you look at Ajahn Panyavado's statements that he's a leading disciple of Ajahn Mahabur. And that's the line that they, they carry. And it's slight, slightly controversial because, um, you know, when does an unconditioned jitta become a soul? Oh dear, we've got a soul coming back. <laughs> you know... <laughs> Uh, he's talking about an experience he's having and recognizing the limitations of words. And for most people, the jitta is extremely conditioned and wrapped up, but he's saying there is a deathless jitta. And you can back that up. You can say the Buddha talks about a deathless element, turning the mind towards the deathless element, the deathless property, the nibbana property. So when the jitta turns towards the deathless, is that a deathless jitta? Is that a way of look, talking about it? How does the Thai language translate to the English language? Mahabur's Thai. How do these words work out? What do they do to you? Hmm. you know? And say, well, you know, uh, and then when you look in the suttas, it's kind of, it's a very fine point because they never exactly say the jitta stops. You don't see neuroda chitta. You see defilement stops, but you don't in the suttas. You don't see chitta nirodas. So chitta, you know, the deathless is the release of chitta from non-grasping. So um, now, if chitta is not a thing, uh, that makes it a bit easier. So it's just the awareness of the unconditioned, or an unconditioned awareness. Perhaps we feel more comfortable with that. Or an awareness that has no boundaries and no favoring and no resistances. The unrestricted jitta. Look in the, some of these collections, you see the Tathagata dwells with unrestricted jitta, unrestricted by the five aggregates, unrestricted by defilement, suffering, aging, sickness, death. Is that a deathless jitta? Sounds like a good candidate. I'm going to uh, stop there for now. Thank you very much. It keeps things alive, and I really like to hear from you. It gives me some, some steering on what's important for you. <laughs>